It's a trap. Like a narcotic. Because when dreams become more important than reality, you give up travel, building, creating. You even forget how to repair the machines left behind by your ancestors. You just sit, living and reliving other lives left behind in the thought wreck. Psychobabble, Psychobabble, where art, music, politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm Elliot, your resident Trek nerd and musical blue flower. And I'm Elizabeth, student of humanoid psychology and Queen Nev fangirl. Yeah. (laughs) Our mission each week is to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. This week, Elizabeth and I discuss imagined realities and their revealing natures. We begin at the very beginning of all Star Trek with the originally unaired Star Trek pilot, The Cage, written by Gene Roddenberry and directed by Robert Butler. The Enterprise receives a distress call from Talos IV, and a reluctant and duty-weary Captain Pike orders the ship to investigate. The away team discovers the survivors of a vessel that crashed 18 years prior, several elderly but healthy male scientists, and a single very young woman, Vina, who was born just as the vessel was crashing. She takes a liking to Pike and maneuvers him into being captured by the native Talosians. The Talosians have developed powerful telepathic abilities that allow them to create illusions. While Pike is led through a series of memories and illusions all designed to create an emotional bond between himself and Vina, The remaining crew discover that there were in fact no other survivors, and that Vina herself must be much older than she appears. Pike manages to stave off the Talosians' abilities by channeling so-called primitive emotions like rage and hate. Defeated, the Talosians resign themselves to eventual extinction, their mental abilities having rendered them sterile and unable to adapt. Vina, whom they poorly reconstructed after the crash, reveals her true physical form to Pike and laments that she cannot return to Earth, but will remain on Talos IV in the comfortable illusion created for her. So Elizabeth, you have spoken before on the pod about uh, the primitive parts of the human brain, uh, different evolutionary sort of stages of our emotional development as, as a species, and how that is reflected in how we kind of cognate the world um, as individuals. Is what uh, what Pike and Vina describe as primitive emotions, is that accurate? Um, I wouldn't call the emotions themselves primitive uh, as opposed to there being unprimitive emotions. Like I think, I think emotions are a critical part of just our, our biological and psychological experience. And, but what I think, what I think is happening in the episode is that by feeling those emotions really strongly, they're actually operating from a different part of their brain structure than the rational thinking part of their brain. So it's like these feelings of fear or anger, like they, they can really, those, 
kind of originate in a deeper part of the brain structure. They happen around the amygdala. The amygdala and your limbic system is kind of your emotional brain, uh, as opposed to like your rational, logical thinking brain. And so those really, I think for this episode, rather than having them live in their quote unquote imagination, which is very cerebral and has these different parts of the brain being activated by getting more in touch with these very, very basic primal animalistic like parts of our experience that they were able, that Pike was then able to kind of detach from the illusion that was being projected into him. That's what I think was happening. That's interesting because what the structure of this episode implies is that both the rational part of our brains that take the sort of cognition of information as it's fed to us and give us our, you know, uniquely human evolved capacity to be logical and empirical is tied to imagination, right? To a conception of non-reality. And as opposed to these really base emotions, hate, anger, rage, um, that are uh, sort of separate us from those other places, you know, we, it's not, it's not the most um, intuitive kind of connection that you might make, where you might think that, well, all, all of the, all of that irrational things, right, all imagination, all fantasy, and these sort of base emotions, those are in one part of our brain, whereas our mathematical, logical, cognitive things are on this side, and that's not really where the split is, right? It's more about layers of our psyche yeah like every, everything's really interconnected like we really don't have these discrete parts of our brain that only do one thing it, it like very science explained to a layman will make it seem that way like we have these really discrete parts of ourselves but really it's all interacting it's all interwoven together but i also think so there's two things i want to talk about one is just what makes us human and then the other is the nature of reality which you mentioned earlier so i just want to say like those are the two i want to address both those things that you mentioned And, and the first is humans we are just made of so many contradictory things we are rational and irrational we are animal and we are spirit you know if you can give me that premise um you know we we are logical and emotional we have we have these we are made of these opposites that somehow have to figure out how to work together and balance. And I think that is a fundamental part of what it means to be human is to have all these contradictory impulses that seemingly like it's one or the other. It's just like, I can, you know, we have this idea that I should be one thing or the other. Whereas if you can have the tension of those opposites and figure out what third or more thing is possible, like if I am both logical and emotional, what does that mean for me? And what options do I have if both these things are true? Like that, that I think is the human condition. We are a bunch of contradictory mm-hmm. things, just like bouncing around together, trying to figure out who's in charge. <laughs> that is what he, that's what it means to be human. Well, I'm glad you figured it out. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> I figured it out. <laughs> Give me my end degree. of show. End of end of life. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, it's just, but I think it's something to explore. Like, I really like. There's so. Yeah. I think figuring out who you are is a lifelong journey and process, and 
and you can continue with that in a lot of different ways with the premise of saying, what if all of this is true? What does that mean? Where can I go from here? And just exploring that I think is really fun versus it being like an end. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. speaking of endings, um, so we're dealing with the first uh, Star Trek thing that it was ever created, right? The, uh, the originally unaired pilot um, with a mostly different crew than the one we got to know in the original series with Kirk and Uhura and so forth. Um, and one of the things when dealing with older media like this from, from its time, we, you know, we've talked a little bit about the 60s and the issues there, right? There's this uncomfortable thing in the episode where Vina, you know, she's like, well, I'm not an 18 year old, you know, supermodel. I'm actually like, I had an injury and look kind of weird. And my face is like this. And I, I can never, I can never go and be with humans again because of that. Like I'm just condemned. You see why I can't go with you. This is the female's true appearance. They found me in the wreckage dying lump of flesh. You know, it's easy to, to look at something like that and, and be really put off by it as a modern audience. And, and I empathize with that. It's, it's cringy. But there's a lot of uh, more subtle stuff happening under the surface that I still think makes these episodes worth revisiting. And the notion that Vina herself, and later on, I don't know if you know this yet, but in um, the actual first season of 2S, in an episode called The Menagerie, Footage from this episode was reused as sort of a backstory to that episode and the series um, after Pike has his accident, which puts him in the famous chair that goes beep. Our next speaker is by far the most alive, Captain Muskie. <laughs> he, like Vina, is brought back to Talos Four to live in his imagined reality on purpose so she and then later pike choose what they know not to be real and to me that's one of the most interesting things about this story despite the fact that it's so early in star trek is everyone kind of knows they're being fooled as they're being fooled and they they go with it anyway it's not one of these like they don't they don't realize that it's not real they they know it and that you it doesn't matter because the emotional experience is still so valid absolutely yeah and i do think that's really interesting for both vena and eventually captain pike to choose this alternate imaginary reality kind of to escape the actual reality where their physical bodies are exist um and that that i think is a yeah. lot to explore but i want to i want to take a step back and actually just talk about uh, again, like the nature of reality, um, which is not that that's easier. Like, as I say that out loud now, I realize that. Um, but in a way, we kind of all live in our imaginations. Um, like, hmm. so there's this Kantian idea that the quote unquote real world is the world that we can perceive through our senses. It's the world that we can quantify. It's the world that we can touch, feel, taste, smell. Like it, it's the tactile sensory world is the quote unquote real world. And I think most people would agree with that idea. Like that's the, that's the real world, the world that we can sense essentially with our, with our physical beings. The world we can sense is the quote unquote real world. 
but humans humans have this psychic imaginal ability that a lot that to the best of our knowledge other species don't have and that's what gives us our ability to predict to problem solve to see patterns to make meaning like essentially our imagination is what makes us human if we didn't have our imagination we would be a lot more like the animals we see around us you know who are just mm -hmm. essentially repeating the same stage of development you know like the life of a cat doesn't change that much generation to generation unless you're looking at like um, evolution in that sense but like cats don't build upon knowledge that has been passed on to them for example humans can and we can do that because of our imagination and our ability to make meaning well, it suggests that there's a connection between imagination and empathy yeah right? we imagine ourselves as these other people who share their experiences with us, with characters from stories, uh, as we'll see in our Strange New Worlds episode later on, um, and with versions of ourselves that are no longer real, like Vina, right? The fact that she, you know, the Telosians were able to reconstruct her in a way that was functional, is how she puts it. Like, everything works, yeah. is what she says. Meaning that they, you know, they connected all the pipes and wires so that she could live and, and eat and whatever. Um, but they weren't able to recreate the image of herself in a way that she looked in a mirror and said, oh, that's me. Yeah. Right. And she brought that to the table because of her imagined reality about herself. But it suggests that that version of her on some level only ever existed in her head. Like, we don't really yeah. know necessarily what she quote unquote actually looked like before any of this stuff happened this is just vina as vina sees herself or wants to be seen. yeah well we all have a self-image of ourselves you know this idea of like who who we think we are and what we think we look like you know like i i, I remember being younger and like, you know always seeing pictures of myself and being like oh that that doesn't look like me that doesn't match the idea of who i think i am in my own head like i think most people have experienced that to like varying degrees and i think you know this it's a really beautiful feeling for you to feel like your outside matches your inside for there to be a, a congruency between who you believe you are and how you're being received in your outer life you know so, so we all do have this self-image of who we are and to the best of our ability we try to get our outsides to match that you know which i think re relates back to the the transgender episodes we were doing uh, the, this previous these previous weeks so like who who do you who do you think you are and how does that match who you are on the outside but it starts with this internal image of who you are and, and that actually translates not just to the idea of who you are and, and the image of yourself that you have in your own mind. It, it's everything, you know, like, so reality is different for every single person because our reality is what we experience and how we perceive it and how we organize those perceptions and how we make meaning out of it that's how we each create our own reality and reality is slightly different for every single person because none of us perceive and organize information in the exact same way so when you look at an object in the real world let's say it's a chair or a stuffed animal or just something 
so anything that you can see in the real world. You're seeing that with your physical eyes, but you also have an image of that in your mind. And that image has meaning attached to it. It has certain qualities and characteristics to it. So you're seeing, you're seeing both what is visually and physically in front of you. And at the same time, you have an image and concept of whatever it is you're looking at that's in your mind. And most of the time, we're actually relating more to that internal image of an object or a person than we are to the physical sensory experience that we're looking at. And it's really trippy when you start to notice the difference. Like for me, it actually feels very different when I notice like, oh, I'm, I'm relating to this less in my imagination and more to the thing that's in front of me. And then noticing how you can kind of slip back and forth between it, like, you know, lifting up that veil or like that filter essentially that you're putting on, like you can start to notice the difference. It's really, it's really fascinating. But that this is a very long way of saying, most of us live in our imagination. You know, most of us yeah. experience life as we experience it internally. And so this idea of there being one reality that we all share is, is actually not completely true. There is an objectable reality. Most of us don't live in it. <laughs> yeah, well, and there are philosophers who would not even agree with that, that there is an object, objective reality, uh, bar, bar none. Um, what you say reminds me of the sort of fluctuating relationship that the characters in the cage have with the Telosians, the aliens, mm -hmm. because obviously on a, on a surface level, these creatures who are creating these illusions are the antagonists, right? They're the bad guys. They're the ones whom the Enterprise crew has to defeat. But it's way more complicated than that. Yeah. And that back and forth that you describe mirrors what I think is how we sort of see the role that these aliens play. And this is one of the things I love about Star Trek um, is it's never that black and white where, well, they're the bad ones. They have the wrong idea. No, it's like, it's, it's complicated. They provide these illusions and where you are in your development, whether you're where Vina is, where you've accepted that the quote unquote objective reality is too far away from what you can live with yeah. to exist there, or you're where Pike is at this point. The framing of the episode before we get to the plot proper is, you know, he has this, has this conversation with the doctor about feeling burnt out yeah. and feeling like he, he might want to kind of leave this job behind. You treat everyone on board like a human being except yourself. And now you're tired and you... You bet I'm tired. You bet. I'm tired of being responsible for 203 lives. and I'm tired of deciding which mission is too risky and which isn't and who's going on the landing party and who doesn't and who lives and who dies. Oh, I've, I've had it, Phil. To the point of finally taking my advice, arrest leave. To the point of considering resigning. It's recommended to him that he essentially explore other realities that his life could be, whether outside of Starfleet, outside of being the captain, etc. And he kind of has a crash course <laughs> in um, in what these possibilities might be through this experience. And just 
going through the imagined process is enough to reset him, yeah. right? To to refresh him so that he's able to tackle the shared reality um, in a rejuvenated way. So it's kind of like he went through therapy, right? Yeah, I, I thought that was really an uh, interesting arc for this episode, for him to... I remember it being like he was actually imagining like I want to give up my captain. I, I don't want to be responsible for all this. Wouldn't all these other things be better? Is how I remember the episode. And then he goes through those things. He he goes through an imaginal experience of those things he thought he wanted. And then he's like, oh, never mind. No, no, I'd much rather have the life I actually have, which I thought was really, really interesting and a nice like you think you want something. And then once you get it, you actually find out much more information. I, I find that that irony just really beautiful yeah. that imagination, as you say, imagination and reality are not necessarily endpoints on a spectrum um, that are in opposition to each other. They are a little bit more three-dimensional than that. Yeah, like they they inform each other a lot. Continue with the fourth season episode of The Next Generation, Remember Me, written by Lee Sheldon, directed by Cliff Bowl and airing in 1990. Dr. Crusher welcomes an old mentor on board the Enterprise from Starbase. Before the ship leaves the station, her son Wesley is rushed to complete an experiment with a warp drive inspired by their encounter with an engineer called Kaczynski and an alien known as the Traveler they had encountered years before. Dr. Crusher observes the experiment before it appears to fail. Later, her mentor, Dr. Quace, has gone missing from the ship. In fact, there is no record of his ever having existed. Little by little, more and more Enterprise crewmen are missing, but only Dr. Crusher remembers any of them or notes the strangeness of their absence. Deck after deck of this ship is deserted now. How do you account for all the empty rooms? If there are only supposed to be 114 people on board, why all the extra space? Transportation of colonists, diplomatic missions, emergency evacuation. Thank you, Mr. Data. There are also unexplained vortices appearing near Crusher that nearly pull her into who knows where. Eventually, it is revealed that Dr. Crusher was trapped in Wesley's warp bubble, and the universe created within it, by her own thoughts, is shrinking, both in content and size, thus explaining the missing people. The Traveler reappears to assist Wesley in rescuing his mother while she spars with the computer within her self-created universe to understand her predicament. Both are successful in the end, and Dr. Crusher escapes the bubble just before it collapses. So, at some point we're going to do an episode about the evolving uh, role of women <laughs> in Star Trek from the 60s through, through the present day. Um, but obviously, TNG has its... Uh, take on female characters, which is, I think, in most ways, most most people would argue is an improvement uh, over the original series. But we still have women confined for the most part to kind of caretaking roles. Um, and so, one thing that's really cool about this episode is that even though she's the doctor, it's it's a kind of a tech um, plot. You know, it's the kind of thing you'd expect maybe Jordy to do, or or the Captain Picard or something. And the fact that they gave it to her, even though it's not really a medical issue, I, I just, I like that for her. Um, and it's very interesting that this episode appears um, 
especially in the fourth season because it is TNG especially and Trek in general is such a rational show and this is such an irrational episode in some ways you know they create this dressing around it with this oh it's Wesley's having an experiment with warp drive but it's really all about the psyche right absolutely like Beverly created a universe out of her own thoughts which on one hand is what we all do. We all create our own reality. But in this case, like there was a observable, like quantifiable um, reality that was also happening around her. Like when she asked the computer, what is the nature of the universe? The universe is a spheroid region 705 meters in diameter. And it responded like that's, <laughs> I, that was cool. That was cool. I thought. Isn't that creepy? Yeah, there's something about that. It's just like, oh, the universe is this. Yeah, like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a space this big. <laughs> Horrifying, right? I'm so glad it's not that small. As, as far as we know, our own universe is just this imagined warp bubble nonsense that we're populating with our own anxieties. <laughs> I. I am really curious to see like what happens in space exploration and what will happen when we do find other intelligent species and societies and cultures. Like there's so much we don't know. There is so much we don't know. And once we know that, how much everything could change. Like that's terrifying and exciting to me. But I, I mm-hmm. want, you know, it's like, hope I get to, if it's, as long as it's positive, it's, if it's a negative thing, I don't need to be around, but you know, it's like, if it's a positive thing, I'd love to see it, you know, like, what is that going to happen? Yeah. Like in my time here on earth? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, but as we, as we like to say, you know, nothing's ever one thing or the other. It's, it's, it's not just positive or negative. It's, it's a mixture of both. And I think, I think that's reflected uh, really well in this episode. So you know, it starts out as this small thing. Uh, Crusher is welcoming her friend Quace on board, or her former mentor on board, and he's an older guy, and he's just sort of casually lamenting, you know, his wife has died, his friends are dying. Reality is changing for him. You know what the worst part of growing old is? So many of the people you've known all your life are gone, and you realize you didn't take the time to appreciate them while you still could. And it implants this small seed in her mind, which, thanks to sci-fi goofiness, ends up growing into this entire universe occupied by her, um, where that idea about things changing and people being lost um, becomes the, the theme and becomes the sort of driving force behind everything that's happening around her. Yeah, like that that sense of loss and disappearance becomes the organizing principle for this universe. Very well put. And to me, in terms of, you know, there's obviously a negative connotation to that on one level where psychologically we can become obsessed with a small idea that gets implanted from wherever, from a conversation or from our own experience or just our own, you know, casual uh doomer scrolling (laughs) that we tend to do these days did you say doomer scrolling yeah (laughs) you know what i'm talking about i think it's called doom scrolling but yeah well i'm i'm a young boomer so i say doomer scrolling okay (laughs) um can you believe i edit these i have no (laughs) idea what i'm doing with technology um (laughs) but you know what i mean like 
you can become trapped within uh, negative thoughts. And that's a negative version of the way this psychological phenomenon can manifest itself. But on the other hand, when those ideas are forced into an organizing principle around a specific uh, experience or situation, like therapy, for example, um, it gives us the opportunity to resolve or at least evolve those issues within us so that we can grow and move on or move ahead in that yeah. story. Yeah, I, I think that that is something that therapy tries to create space for is um, there, there's this concept of the corrective emotional experience. So in people's lives, you know, like they're they're ruminating on this negative idea or they have these um, behavioral patterns, like interpersonal behavioral patterns that are not benefiting them. They want to change, but they don't know how. And so th therapy, you try to create the space for something else to happen that hasn't happened before, you know, so that, oh, instead of you just running through this script again and again and again, and you're not understanding why you can't get out of the cycle, therapy tries to create the space and the interpersonal relationship where that pattern doesn't actually have to repeat. And you can find out like, oh, here's the, here's the door you have to kick open to avoid going down this road again, you know? Mm. Uh, so th that's, that's something that like is the idea you know like we want to show people what else is possible in relationship yeah and a, a an imposed limitation on reality which is what crush your experiences here right where you you're given a sort of narrow focus on what what possibilities are um is what gives us that space right think so but what I really thought about what I really liked about this episode was I was recently talking with a friend who mentioned to me that suddenly a lot of people that she knew were starting to pass away like she had three people like so far this year who were dear friends of hers who now have passed away one very unexpectedly and we were talking and she mentioned you know we were talking about how there's a time in our life where you know it's, there's a time in our lives when everyone's getting married. And then there's a time in our lives when everyone we know is having babies. And then there's a time in our life when our friends start to die. And like, we're never emotionally prepared for that, even though, again, rationally, we know that's coming, but we avoid thinking about it. And we avoid feeling that for as long as possible, because it's so hard and painful and unpleasant. But um, as we were talking about just like that, that time in our life when the people that we've known and loved and built our lives around suddenly leave, in a way, our reality can get smaller, you know, and that was what was happening with Beverly. Her universe was getting smaller. And that, that can happen to people when the relationships they've had for a long time end for various reasons. And if they don't get make new friends, you know, like suddenly the, their circle, their community is getting smaller and smaller and in a way their universe is shrinking. And that's, yeah. that's something I think we can all understand. And it's sad. And it's something we can try to say, like, you need friends throughout your life. It's not like you suddenly reach an age and you don't need friends and community anymore. Like you, you need that your entire life to have, people coming in and out, you know? And so like that, that influx of people should never stop, but it often does, you know? And then when those people start to 
leave your life, it can have this very shrinking feeling and the world as you knew it is so much smaller and doesn't exist anymore. To your point, one of the creepiest aspects of this imagined reality is how the other people on the Enterprise, it imagined people, um, every time people disappear and she's like, there's supposed to be over a thousand people on the ship. And they're like, no, there's only 800. Oh, there's only a hundred people. And they all act like it's completely fine. Eventually it's just her and Captain Picard by themselves on this <laughs> giant ship. And he's like, I don't know what's wrong with you. You're crazy lady. You know, doctor, I have been more than fair. I've done everything I can to substantiate your, your perceptions of a Will crew. Riker, your first officer. I cannot find any evidence of a Will Riker. Beverly. Perhaps it would be best if you were to confine yourself to sickbay until we arrive. It's all perfectly logical to you, isn't it? <sighs> the two of us roaming about the galaxy in the flagship of the Federation, no crew at all. We've never needed a crew before. Yeah. You know, it's like, it feels like gaslighting to her and she's like trying to keep it together. But that's kind of how... When our universes shrink, when our communities shrink, when we age into complicity with our ideas and we start to maybe be less imaginative about the world and its possibilities, um, that idea that whatever our universe has shrunk to is perfectly fine in its shrinking nature is reinforced sometimes by the society around us who say, no, 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 this is how it is. Stop, s stop your nonsense about, no, there's not, there's not supposed to be a thousand people on the ship. You're crazy. Mm. No, no, no. Things don't have to be better. Things aren't supposed to be different. You're just acting out. We, I think we hear that a lot in our lives. And when we're young and imagination is seen as more natural, um, it's, I guess, forgiven might be the word or encouraged on the best circumstances but as you say the older we get the more and more we're encouraged to sort of put those things away and uh confine ourselves to this shrinking bubble of a universe that we're um we're left with yeah oh that was so wonderfully put elliot thank you but yeah a lot of people will try to tell you what is and isn't possible for you you know and so, so here, here's a little therapy secret. Are you ready for this? All right. Ready. If someone tells you you're overreacting, you're, you, you're A, you're probably not, and B, they just don't want to deal with your emotional experience. That is a red flag, just immediately mm -hmm. out of the gate. You're like, oh, so you, you don't want to deal with my emotional reaction to whatever it is you've just done. So you're telling me I'm wrong in my experience. Hmm. Hmm. Why would yeah. I believe you? Why would I believe you? I, I used to think that everyone else had a much better sense of what was actually going on than I did. And it took me a long time to be able to trust my own experiences and to say, like, this is true for me. I hear that that's not true for you, but I'm not going to change my emotional experience of this situation just because it makes you uncomfortable. And that, like, that took a long time to, like, be able to stand in that and not back down after decades of conditioning of everyone else telling me what what is and isn't true. So it, it, I think I think a lot of people, like 
grow up with that messaging and, and not everyone gets the chance to undo it. So that's, that's one reason I'm very passionate about like, learn to trust your own reality. What does she say? She says, she says, there's nothing wrong with me. Maybe there's something wrong with the universe. And she's right. Yeah. Sometimes it's, sometimes there is something wrong with the universe or your culture yeah. or your community. It's that cliche saying of, um, if you're, if you're feeling depressed, first make sure you're not surrounded by assholes. You know, <laughs> like there might yeah. be a very good reason that you're feeling the way you are. It might not be that something's quote unquote wrong. Um, yeah. but, but I also want to talk about, like, like we were talking about self-image in the first episode. I think that's also true for people, especially as they grow older and just like this sense of what is possible for me in my life. You know, um, like there have been studies shown that if, as people get older and they become elders and we just transition into this like different time in our life. If you have a, a negative idea about what it means to get older, like versus if you have a positive idea, like just like the, the way you approach and the way you think about what is possible for you in that time of your life has huge health implications. Like simply thinking that, oh, just cause I'm older doesn't mean I have to be weaker or decrepit or that my memory is going to go, or that I'm suddenly unuseful. Like if you believe that all, like that is what is in store for you when you become an elder, that's probably going to happen to you as a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, so imagination literally makes reality. Absolutely. Cause you're, you're, you, yeah. why would you, if you can't imagine a life for you beyond that, why would you try for it? And so it becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy of this is who I think I am. This is who I think I can be. And so the decisions I make are going to be based upon that premise versus any other kind of possibility. So it's so important, especially as we get older and just like culturally, like it is so hard to be old in our culture. It's so ageist. And, and so it's really, really important as we get older to have a positive outlook on what it means to age, because we're gonna have a better life if we think that there is still something worth living for than if we don't. final episode this week takes us all the way to the first season of Strange New Worlds. The Elysian Kingdom, aired this year, 2022, was written by Akila Cooper and Anitra Johnson and directed by Amanda Rao. Dr. Mbega is taking the opportunity to double down on the medical research to save his daughter, Rukia, while the Enterprise catalogs a strange nebula. She has to spend most of her time in transporter suspension a la Scotty and Relics, and the few minutes she spends materialized are usually occupied by her father reading her The Elysian Kingdom, a fantasy story involving queens, wizards, and magic stones. The nebula does what space anomalies tend to do in Star Trek and causes the ship to be stuck and consoles to explode. Mbenga is called to the bridge where he discovers that the ship and crew have been redressed in the garb and plot of his daughter's favorite storybook. After uniting with Chief Engineer Hemmer, whose Enar telepathy shields him from whatever is affecting the others, Mbenga slowly pieces together that the version of the story they're enacting is Rukia's preferred outcome, with changes to the plot and characters that reflect her innocent frustration with the book as written. 
The doctor discovers that the nebula is able to protect her from the effects of her illness, and that aliens within the nebula have affected the changes to the Enterprise in order to keep her safe and happy. In the end, he chooses to allow his daughter to remain, now fully grown, within the alien's care, in order for the ship and crew to escape and return to normal. I loved this episode so much. I had so much fun watching it the first time. I enjoyed it the second time, watching it while we were preparing for this. Um, I This episode is one of my favorites that I've seen recently. It's so good. And I especially love this last scene with uh, Mbenga and, well, it's not the very last scene, but when Mbenga is talking with Rukia at the end and he's faced with this choice of, how do I save my daughter? You know, and and he's talking to her through the story, which I think is really, really beautiful. And actually the way child psychologists are are taught to work with kids, you know, like we work with them in a very imaginal, artistic, metaphorical, story-driven way versus making it so explicit about like, oh, this is really about your mom and dad and what's going at home, on at home right now. We'll talk more about like, oh, tell me more about the monster or tell me more about why the house is scared. You know, like you talk at that level and the kids, the kids are really smart. Like they, they will be able to track the emotional experience of that story as it relates to their real life without you actually having to say anything about it. And, and Mbenga's doing that here with Rukia. He's saying, King Gridley has the Mercury Stone. He wants to keep it. It protects him, makes him happy, until he learns that it has a soul and that it will die if he holds on to it. He has to let it go. Even though it means he won't be happy anymore. that being his emotional reality through a metaphor, but it's still true. And the way he's communicating that to Rukia, I just thought was so beautiful. And so very Star Trek. Like that's one of the things about this franchise is that it's not a kid's show. It's not, you know, but it is the kind of show you can share with your kids, no matter how old they are, because most of the time, because as you say, the metaphorical content, the emotional content, even if some of the story beats or jokes or whatever go over their heads, they're going to connect with and retain. I mean, I, growing up with Star Trek, I don't remember a lot of the detail from being a kid about the stories, and there were certain things that I didn't understand, but I very much carry the the lesson and the, the meaning behind the stories that I watched um, as a kid with me. And that's what makes it still so emotionally resonant for me today and why I look for those kinds of meanings in other stories that I that I uh, consume in real life, uh, supposing there's a difference between the imagined and uh, actual realities, right? <laughs> and this, this story, you know, it occupies an interesting slot in the legacy of Trek stories. You know, there's Things like uh, Cupid from The Next Generation, right? Where you're having characters act out uh, the uh, Robin Hood story for the benefit of Picard's uh, emotional growth, sort of. (laughs) Um, You have things like Shirley from the original series where people are imagining giant bunny rabbits and things. You haven't seen this one yet. It's it's a a trip. 
I wouldn't watch it sober. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Thanks for the tip. Yeah, and then there's things like on DS9, there's Dramatis Personae, um, where, again, the, the crew are acting out these uh, this, this fictional story that's been sort of forced. It's, it's similar in a, in a way to, to what happens here in Stranger Worlds. But, you know, Trek has to toe a fine line with those things because they're going to get really silly really fast, and sometimes it's, it's not good. <laughs> um, or at least it's not good in the way they mean it to be. And I think... Like on a production level, one of the things that's really cool here is instead of just having the whole ship suddenly be a forest or a kingdom or whatever, it's the same sets yeah. with curtains and stuff, right? Kind of, it, it looks it looks like a set on top of a set. And it gives you this sense of theatricality that really sells what's happening here and why we should give a shit <laughs> about this story. You know, it's not about like we know that these characters, these knights and queens and things don't matter to the crew in the end. It's about the theater of it and the meaning behind the story. Absolutely. Like I, on a meta perspective, I was thinking about how much fun this must have been for that cast to create. You know, like it just is <laughs> like you get to do cosplay, essentially. Like they were cosplaying in <laughs> Star Trek, which I love it when the show does that. Um but I was just I was just watching this episode, being like, thinking this must have been so much fun to do, and yeah. and and they talk about that in the show, you know, when Mbega is scanning Nurse Chapel and a couple and um, a couple other people, he mentions that their dopamine levels are raised. Yeah, dopamine right. is dopamine is one of the hormones that is engaged in happy feelings in play, and so like I, I thought that was a nice nod to saying like this kind of stuff can be fun. You know, like there, you yeah. can you can let yourself play. This is a pleasurable thing, as opposed to like there being like signs of distress or something, um, which I thought was right. which I thought was really sweet. Just to be like, how how can you have fun with this? Like, how can we be reminded that play is fun? Yeah, definitely. The way they handle stakes is is pretty clever yeah. in this way. And I just want to mention one of my favorite little Easter eggs. There's a bunch of them in the newer shows because they're intentionally being kind of referential to older Trek, uh, which is. It, it can be too much sometimes, but one of the really subtle things is here is, so the Elysian Kingdom, I didn't realize this when I first watched the episode. I thought it was some fantasy story that I just had never read before. Um, and it turns out they created it for the show um, in universe, which is kind of unique. And, and I appreciate the effort, but the attributed author in universe is Benny Russell. And if you remember, Benny Russell is the character from my favorite episode of Star Trek, which is Far Beyond the Stars from DS9. Um, who is kind of a Gene Roddenberry stand-in with all this other racial stuff on top of it. It's a great episode. We're definitely going to talk about it someday. But I, what a small but lovely little piece of um, added continuity to, to, to put in this universe. Yeah, oh, that's a really sweet Easter egg, like Benny Russell. I was like, that took me a minute. I was like, wasn't that a Cisco thing? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, all those other episodes a few minutes ago, just on the top of your hat, like that is your superpower. Whereas I was like, what <laughs> is that from? So. <laughs> hey, Treknobabblers, we hope you're enjoying the show. We wanted to take a moment to invite you to follow us on social media. Yeah, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Treknopsychopod. You can also find us on Facebook at Treknobabble Psychobabble Podcast. 
And if you have any questions or comments or ideas that you would love uh, for us to cover in our podcast, you can email us at treknopsychopod at gmail.com. And we would love for you to also follow us on YouTube at treknopsychopod, where you can enjoy our podcasts with all of the stunning visuals that are included. And if you would like to support us on Patreon at Treknobabble Psychobabble Podcast, we would appreciate any support you can offer. Enjoy the show. One of the things that really stood out to me in this episode, um, which I thought was a good thematic element that really like bookended the whole show and, and also is uh, ex- demonstrates the power of imagination and the value of it, is that in the beginning of the episode, Mbega in, in quote unquote the real world was faced with two choices. He either had to find a cure for his daughter's illness or she would die. Like that was what he was weighed with. That was what was weighing him down. Like those were the two possibilities in his mind. And then he's reading the story to Rukia and he's saying in the book, like, oh, the king has to either, has to give up the mercury stone in order to save Princess Thalia. Um, So like he's faced again with another kind of binary choice. You either save the Mm -hmm. princess or you give up or you get to keep your greatest weapon, you know, and she just storms in and she says, no, why are those the only two options? What else is possible? What if this happened? Let me rewrite the story. And, and she does that, you know, like the entity, when it takes over the whole ship, it casts everybody as characters in Rukia's version of the story, which is what helps Mbenga and Hemmer realize that it's Rukia who's, who is in communication with this entity. And so it's this beautiful, it's this beautiful idea of what possibility can do. And then at the end of the episode, he's faced with another at first binary choice. He either has to choose the well-being of his daughter or the well-being of his crew. And he says, like, you can't make me make that choice. Again, like a binary option. It's this or that. And then this yeah. third possibility comes through about what if Rukia stayed with the entity. And I just, I just love that. This, this sense of like, I am locked within this, these binary choices, and they're both, and they're either both bad or they're really hard, and the stakes are so high. And, and the power of imagination allows us to think of another possibility. It's like, what else is possible besides these two choices? And we see several examples of that third option being evoked and created and how that is so much better than either of the two possibilities we had at first. Well, and that's even before the episode begins, that's where Mbenga sort of is emotionally with, with his daughter, right? He's he's stuck and, and she's literally stuck. She keeps getting yeah. put in transporter uh, suspension, right? Um, between these hard realities. He either gets to see his daughter or she dies. <laughs> um, and the a solution he's able to imagine at first is I either find a cure or she's stuck in this nebulous sort of suspension on the, re- the rest of her life. Um, and it is through this experience that he realizes or he's, he's given the tools to imagine the third option that you talk about. And the third option is, it's painful, right? It's it, it probably the reason why it wouldn't have occurred. To, I mean, he didn't know about the nebula specifically, but to imagine a possibility is like, oh, what if I let my daughter go? Yeah. What if she weren't, she didn't get to be a part of my life anymore, but she got to live? 
that's a hard thing to deal with, but it is that third option that our limited sense of reality might shield from us in real life, right? Yeah, I mean, that was such a painful moment. I, I did appreciate it in that episode. They really lingered at the time between when Rukia as a child um, went into the nebula. Like they they hung on to that moment of just Mbenga's despair. Like for, uh, they, they let that sit, which I really appreciate as a creative choice. And I felt devastated in that moment. And then she came back and it's like, what's happening? But I do, I really appreciate that they did not shy away from the emotional weight of that decision. And that that was heartbreaking for him, but he still made that choice because it let his daughter live. And, and again, like the emotional reality of what is happening in the real world, like him letting his daughter go with this entity and the emotional reality of the story he was telling about how the king had to let the mercury stone go because otherwise it would die. Like those emotional realities are the same. So even though the story isn't quote unquote real, it's still true. And that's the lesson here overall, right? Is truth isn't limited to the measurable. Truth is emotional. Truth is psychological. Truth is... Truth is experiential. I have been through something extraordinary no one on the ship remembers. Sounds like a hell of a story. It is. It begins, like all good stories, once upon a time. To me, that just encapsulates the experiential weight of our imaginations and the impact it can have we have these internal experiences that are communicated metaphorically. And just because it's not happening out in the open for everyone else to see, doesn't mean it's not really happening. This would make another great episode that we'll have to do someday because this is something that comes up a lot in Star Trek, uh, whether it's Picard and All Good Things, where he has this whole experience with Q that no one else but him remembers, but so defining or... Uh, Harry Kim in Timeless when he has the alternate future with Voyager or um, uh, what we were just talking about Far Beyond the Stars with Cisco and his experience that's entirely within his own mind and his own heart and those are some of the best episodes of Star Trek that exist um, and I think that's something we're going to have to come back to Something else I really enjoyed about this episode was the way Mbenga and eventually Hemmer started to play along with the story. You know, like Hmm. they could have just completely ignored this like fantasy, like wherewithal that was happening around them and just be like, this isn't real. I'm not dealing with this. I'm just going (laughs) to move through this world as if it was the world that existed before this weirdness happened. And they could have done that. But that wouldn't, like, they were so much more successful in in achieving their goals once they started to play along with the story, which I, I thought was cool for two reasons. One, it, it shows just 
they enjoyed it. I do think they really enjoyed kind of getting into character and playing, you know, like with Hemmer at the end when he like uses the transporter uh, and he transports them all away. Like he hands that up mm -hmm. so much. And I just, mm -hmm. I love that idea of this, like, you know, you know, by the book, Star Trek engineer, just like getting into character in that way. And just again, how much fun that would have been. And also Mbenga just being so ferocious when he says, you shall not touch my daughter, or I will bring the might of my kingdom down upon your heads. I think that's just a really beautiful allegory for, can we go along with what is happening in our lives externally and internally versus you know, just being like a stubborn bull, ignoring, ignoring the, yeah. the play that we're in, essentially. What if you played along? What if you let yourself go along with the ride? And because I think sometimes we resist, we resist what's happening in our lives. And this to me was a nice way of showing along like, no, 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 play along, play along. It actually, it's not going against what you actually want if you play along. Well, that obstinate, sort of realism, I guess we can call it, um, you know, that would be, so you, what you said about Mbenga in terms of what he says when he threatens um, to bring the wrath of the kingdom and all of that, it's one of those things that is emotionally very true, yes. right? That's how it reads to me anyways, like, no, 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 I will fuck you up if you mess with my daughter. I think he would say that in any situation, yeah. right? He's a, he's a father. Um, but it's, giving a kind of context to that thing that we do when we say those kinds of things where if I say in the real world world, if I'm going to threaten somebody because they're threatening someone that I love, I am imagining a reality that might not be true. <laughs> I'm thinking I could do anything. I'll beat you up. I'll, I'll protect the world. I'll be the superhero. Maybe probably not. Right. But we need that imagined version of ourselves in order to get us to say the thing that then projects the emotional reality that might just be convincing to other people we send that that imagination in front of us like a filter yeah. right um that other people see us through yeah yeah it, it's like this character is the vehicle for the message and the emotion that we're trying to convey and that is real even if the the, the container with which we send it is imaginary perceptions of time and space and thought. When Beverly Crusher was caught in the static warp bubble, she created her own reality. Her thoughts, at the precise moment she was trapped, determined its shape and form. I think that scene and that quote specifically is my favorite moment from that TNG episode because it is true. It is 100% true. We have such, we have blinders on as to the nature of reality and thought and space and time. There's so much that we ignore, that we filter out, that we just don't know yet. And, and I love that 
in an episode where Beverly Crusher is creating a reality out of her thoughts that they include that because it's true. It's so true. We create our own reality through our imagination. And for them just to be so explicit with that idea, which in my opinion doesn't get flushed out very well, but like just for them to like place that idea out, it's it's like, yep, yep, that is true. That is true. And how much can mm. you take those blinders off? How much more can you become aware of? Well, it's interesting. You talk about the fleshing out of that idea because so um, the Traveler's story, there's one, well, there's one more episode in TNG dealing with his relationship to Wesley. And that's in, near the very end of the series. It's called Journey's End. And in the end of that episode, it's interesting, very much like uh, Mbenga's daughter, he goes off with the Traveler to be this ascended being. Um, and there's no, I mean, he says goodbye to Beverly, but there's no like c real catharsis about her and his relationship and how that moves ahead the way that we do see in the Elysian kingdom, where we, f we see that growth, where the experience is a little more fleshed out for Mbenga, even within the single episode where he then takes something from this imagined reality and applies it to his life and similarly says goodbye to his child to go live in this different uh, kind of reality. Yeah. I think that goes along with what we are talking about with this franchise evolving and going back and kind of like, let, let's, let's try this again and try to make it better. You know, the way we didn't give Wesley and Beverly the kind of goodbye that they deserved. Can we rectify yeah. that somehow in this similar story? And I hadn't realized that they both, both Wesley and Rakia, like, disappear into the ether like i hadn't made that connection that's really interesting <laughs> that like that idea has happened now more than once in this franchise yeah uh, it happened again with cisco and jake two of the end of ds9 yeah, it's happened yeah. a few times where there's these kind of parent child separations that are that happen and we don't kind of deal with all of it as much as we should so that's something i certainly appreciate about um what happened in stranger worlds here you brought up cut a little earlier which yeah. got me got my wheel spinning because um <laughs> uh we both have some training um in 19th century philosophy as it relates especially to well in my case especially to uh uh wagner and uh classical opera and kant was a major inspiration to jung which i think is where you're approaching this specifically in this case right um in terms of that legacy but he was also inspirational to people like schopenhauer and freud and um and wagner and one of the things that i love both about wagner operas about schopenhauerian philosophy and about star trek is that it gives us the opportunity to deal with metaphysics but without religion so usually when we talk about metaphysics we're talking about the hyper reality of you know where, where god or gods exist heaven and death and and sort of the transmutation of the soul and those sorts of things and i don't want to disparage that but it's usually couched within these kind of systemic religious institutions that have their own things <laughs> their own baggage yeah. their own ways of doing things um but when we're just talking about meta pure metaphysics the the noumenal realm the place where we go when we're asleep, when we're listening to music, when we're considering metaphor, 
when we're imagining things, that is as valid, if not more valid, a layer of reality than our experiential, what Schopenhauer called the material uh, realm. Yeah. Uh, and th that's one of the things, whether people realize it or not, you know, you talked about play and how people need to play and enjoy themselves. People are entertained watching TV shows or, or what have you. It's, it's really a, a deep communion that we're having with this noumenal place. It is kind of a religious experience when we do these kinds of things. And we're not always comfortable talking about art in that way. But for me, that is the reason I keep coming back to this show. Is the reason I want to talk about it, is the reason I'm doing this podcast, is that it has this deep and penetrating meaning in the human condition. I agree with you completely. And that's one of the reasons we're friends. And that's one of the reasons why we both wanted to make a podcast talking about these ideas through Star Trek. So, you know, in yeah. case anyone was wondering why we wanted to do this, that's a good summary. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think once you start to talk about religion, things can get dicey because a lot of, you know, people have very strongly held convictions about what religion is, about what religion isn't, regardless of if they subscribe to a religion or not. You know, even I know mm -hmm. atheists have very strong convictions about the nature of anything that you would call sacred or divine. And without trying to touch that hot coal too much, I'm going to get close <laughs> to, I'm going to get close to it by saying, I, I believe that part of what makes us human is this intersection of the physical and the spiritual. The, like we have the capability to become aware of many layers and levels of experience and reality happening at the same time. And I think that metaphysical layer and the numinous and that sense of awe and wonder and that we can touch into in, in different ways. Everyone has a different way of finding their way to that wonder. But that's what I think is what I consider sacred. And it doesn't have to be just constrained to religion. If anything, we're all just trying to find a way to connect to that, even just momentarily, and become and be aware that that level of reality exists for us at the same time as this material world like the, the material world is not all there is and i think and and learning to become aware of the different levels of reality and that is that are happening for you in any given moment like that i think is growth and maturity and how you can touch wonder what a wonderful breadth of that experience we go through in the episodes we looked at this week. I mean, we have in the cage, we have uh, it, it touching that hyper reality, that numinous reality through this telepathy, right? This imposed imagined image. And in Remember Me, we are getting to it through a created reality as a response to a thought and couched in this idea that it's a science experiment. And in the Elysian Kingdom, we are dealing with it like a fairy tale that you tell a child. 
And all of these things feel so different from each other on the surface, and yet they are touching the same place. They are communing with each other on this other level. And that's why, you know, Star Trek as a franchise is very diverse in its storytelling um, techniques. You've got really goofy, weird stories, really hard science stories, really epic kind of Star Warsy stories. They're all they all fit, um, and everything in between. And they fit, I think, because they're all they all have little telepathic tendrils on this piece of of, of something special. Yeah, that, that reminds me of this idea called the Lumen Naturale, which is an a term that is from alchemy in in medieval Europe. And Jung looked to alchemy as a really good metaphor for just the changes that a person goes through throughout their life. And just what is possible psychologically is a lot like what the metaphor of alchemy um, is trying to describe. And in that sense of the lumen natural, it's this idea that every single person and every single thing is one point and it's like one pair of eyes in this many-eyed being and so that we are all this sense of this like partial consciousness that actually all fed together um, is connected to this larger consciousness of which we are a tiny tiny part and but we are also how that bigger consciousness experiences life like we are bring, we are the vehicle for that co- larger con- consciousness to experience the world it's a way to say like we're supposed to be diverse like we need all these different perspectives because they all exist and they all want to be seen and they all want to be manifested and we need all of it we're not all supposed to be just one thing and, and so to me it's a really beautiful metaphorical idea to say like how are we how is this diversity needed in order for this incredibly complex singularity to emerge into the world really well put i love that image and i love the i love talking about diversity in that way because it's a it's a the year is 2022 and it uh diversity like like the like with the word woke or the word political correct there's a lot of words that get people's emotions riled up uh in particular ways regardless of how you feel about your own politics or whatever um and the word diversity usually is confined to, as we have talked about in previous episodes, um, you know, racial diversity, sexual diversity, orientation diversity, which are all important, valid, fundamental topics. But we're also talking about a diversity of consciousness and a diversity of perspective and a diversity of, well, imagination, right? A diversity of how we perceive the world and what we project onto it. Because I think that's why Star Trek has such a broad appeal to so many different kinds of people is because of that diversity in all of its manifestations. Yeah, It, it, it shows a wide breadth of what is possible and what already is. And yeah, there's a lot there's a lot to grab onto and there's a lot to hope for and there's a lot to criticize and it's all there and it's all welcome. One of my favorite moments in the Strange New Worlds episode Elysian Kingdom is 
when Mbenga and Rukia are talking in his quarters and he asks to talk to the entity. And she says, It doesn't really work that way. If you have a voice in your head, if you have some direct channel to a kind of knowledge that you know you are receiving, but it doesn't quite work in the way that you're used to communicating and the way you would communicate with another like person, like there's that sense of no, no, like I can, I can, I can communicate with this other autonomous entity, but it's a different kind of communication than happens in the ordinary world, but it's still real. That's still a different autonomous entity that isn't me, but I can communicate with it, but it's, it's different. When the entity scanned the ship and found Rukia's consciousness, and that's how the entity knew that Rukia was lonely and felt empathy, like, oh, I feel that way. Rukia was in stasis. Rukia's right. body was dematerialized. So where was her consciousness? Yeah, in the transporter buffer, I guess, but no. No, no. <laughs> right? but, like, but that's a really good point. Like our, our consciousness cannot be reduced to the brain, to the mind, to biological mm -hmm. functions. Like something else creates and houses our consciousness. That's not something that we have been able to pinpoint physically or biologically, but we know consciousness exists. So where is it? And I think that's just a great, you know, just a great thing to point out. Like, it's like Beverly Crusher asking the computer, like, wait, like you can't, can you answer this question? And just the ambiguity yeah. and the suspension of that of like, oh yeah, where, where is, where was Rukia's consciousness? Where is yours? It's not your brain. Who is Vina? What is the nature of the universe? Where is Rukia's consciousness? All different ways of asking kind of the same question. So, Elizabeth, how do you think we should engage with our imaginations in our day-to-day -day lives? There's two parts that I want to say, um, that at least a two-part answer. The first is that when you're going throughout your life and you're having pleasant interactions or challenging interactions with other people, with, with whatever it is that you're experiencing, can you ask yourself, what is this like? Can you somehow tap into the level of experience that you're having that is metaphorical, that is like a story, that has multiple meanings? That's it's not just it. So you're, you're trying to move away from a literal understanding of your own life to almost a more poetic one. You know, like, oh, what what is the metaphor of whatever is happening right now? What is the metaphor of what I'm seeing? And kind of trying to trying to open up the seams of your imagination in that way so that there are more possibilities. And the second I would say is um, there's this uh, Jung advocated for a technique that's called active imagination. And it is essentially 
letting your imagination take the lead and show you what it wants to show you and you sit back and watch and there's there's different techniques to kind of like get into that place where you can sit back and you're watching your imagination do things for you in your mind's eye but you're not making it happen yourself it's not like you're creating it it's more like you're watching it and that takes a level of quietude that is I think really really hard to find in like modern society like it takes so much time and so much space just to be quiet and like to be able not only to hear yourself think but to hear what the other forces in your psyche are thinking and want to communicate to you and it's this idea of you know imagine sitting in a forest and there are wild animals around and you want the wild animal to feel close to feel safe enough that it will come and like be around you and then you can watch that animal versus if you're just like making a bunch of noise and like being raucous like the animal is going to come nowhere near you and your imagine mm -hmm. your imagination has a similar animalistic quality where you have to be really quiet and patient and kind of take a back seat and just try to to let it show you what it wants to show you so how can you be more open and receptive to the poetic levels of your life? Well, uh, the optimistic Roddenberry future suggests that even these people living on spaceships can find the time to do this. So hopefully we can do the same. Next week, Elizabeth and I will be talking about implanted memory and the effects that can have on our psyche. Elizabeth, thank you so much, as always, for your incredible insights. Thank you for talking about these uh, really fun and occasionally devastating uh, episodes of Star Trek with me. Thank, thank you, Elliot. This is such a pleasure to be able to geek out with you like this week after week. Thanks for being game to do this with me. <laughs> always. Uh, thank you to our patrons. Thank you to our listeners and followers. And we will see you next week. See you next week. Thank you.